Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler. And each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at The Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Welcome to Naked Reflections. Where do religious beliefs come from? It's a perfectly reasonable question and it's a question that even the fervent atheist might ask although Richard Dawkins would come to a different conclusion from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Anyway, it's the question we're asking this week, and in this post-truth and ideologically polarised world, we certainly need a better understanding of each other's beliefs. Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist and economist, suggested that for some of our most important beliefs we have no evidence at all, except that people we love and trust hold on to these beliefs. Considering how little we know, the confidence we have in our beliefs is, frankly, preposterous. But it's also essential. Astrophysicists have good form when it comes to these matters. It must be all that stargazing. Here's Catherine Fries letting her imagination rip in the Naked Scientist show Dark Matter, A Massive Mystery. So imagine the, the ancients before ancient Greek, go back to cave days, they must have wondered what is out there. I mean, that's what makes us humans. That's who we are as a species. We're curious and we, we want to understand our surroundings. And that's why we've been successful as a species. So I think this is kind of this burning desire to understand, my, my God, the, the bulk of, of what is around us, the bulk of the universe. So I think answering this big, giant question, that's, that's revolutionary and that's, it's super important all by itself. Catherine's expletive, my God, is very revealing. With me to discuss where religious belief comes from are Dr. Kitty Alone, research fellow and outreach manager here at the Wolf Institute. Kitty is a Naked Reflections regular. And joining her for the first time is Rabbi Danny Smith, emeritus lecturer at Leobeck College, a rabbinical seminary in London. 
mentor to rabbis and priests, and founding chairman of the Raphael Center, a Jewish counseling service. I must admit, I'm a bit wary of putting the question, where do religious beliefs come from? Because for me, as a person of faith, perhaps the answer should be God. Kitty, as a social scientist, can you help me out? Well, that is a very good question. And as you might expect, there are various different hypotheses about the origin um, or the genesis, forgive the pun, of religious belief. The most prominent is something called the hyperactive agency detection device. So think of it this way. In the ancestral environment, being able to properly infer the presence of a predator or an agent could quite literally cost you life or death. So what Um, has happened, people argue, is that we have evolved a very hyperactive agency detection device. It incurs less costs to falsely assume that a predator is there when they're not, rather than the other way around. I mean, again, it is literally life and death. So what has happened, some scholars argue, is that this hyperactivity of the agency detection device that's been implicated in the formation and transmission of religious beliefs. So the arguing goes in ambiguous sort of agency stimuli, it's not a big leap to assume that there is a an agent there and that that agent may well be unseen and that the unseen agent may well be supernatural in origin. So that's one of the leading hypotheses. It's been sort of reformulated, repackaged over the years, but um, it's certainly not without its flaws, but it's a very leading theory of where religious belief comes from. Danny, as a minister of religion, you simply worship, and I'm quoting, a hyperactive agency detection device. I think that the danger in these origins of whatever is that one is stuck with a reductionist nothing but approach. You know, that is still the case many, many eons after it first happened. So I can accept there may be all kinds of starting points to religious awareness, to the sense of the numinous, to the sense of awe or fear or love. You know, all of these can have very infantile beginnings. But I think one needs to see development and process in this. So I would go more with a sort of Karen Armstrong type of approach of religion to say that there is primitive religion, which has its beginnings perhaps in fear and a wish to control that which you can't control. But over the centuries, it's transformed and become something profound, mature and very meaningful to vast numbers of people. So meaning is more important than belief, Danny? I think so. I, speaking as a Jew for whom belief is not the most important thing, you know, actions and right actions and decent behaviour trumps that. And also the very word belief, I think, for a believer, it doesn't mean quite the same thing as people think it does. So if someone says, do you believe in God for a believer, that's a bit like my asking you, do you believe in the prime minister? Of course, you know he exists. But the question is, do you trust him to do a competent job? Similarly, do you have faith in your wife or husband? It's more, of course they exist. The question is, will you stake your life on it? Will you trust them to be faithful and reliable and to help you be your best self and so on? So I think that's the way that I would go with belief in God. And I don't think many believers would say, here's the 10 propositions of belief that I sign up to, even though theologians try to imagine that's how most people work. Danny's touched on some very interesting points and um, certainly the role of culture and upbringing plays an enormous role in where religious beliefs come from, how they're shaped, how they're moulded, also how they're transmitted across cultures. And also he raised a very interesting point, which is shamanic forms of religion 
date back over 500,000 years, and they're much more ancient in lineage than um, theologically-based religions, but it's actually a characteristic of a post-agricultural society, which has only really been on the scene for a few thousand years. So we're in a very interesting period in terms of our religiosity, if you like, because we're entering this theology-based, or we're sort of in this theology-based model of religion, which up until you know a couple of thousand years ago was not the norm for how religion was practised and, dare I say it, believed It sounds like you've both got a kind of progressive view from the primitive to the more sophisticated religion, Danny. And then you're talking, Kitty, about the development of attitudes. Is that what you're saying? That I don't want to use the term progressive revelation uh, for both of you, but there's um, an ongoing development and change and we're becoming more sophisticated. Is that the argument? I think historically one might, you know, we'll see that, that early religions are primitive about appeasing whatever dangers you see around, about trying to control things because you feel you can't. And also that word numinous, that sense of awe, I think is present both in ancient religion and in modern religions. I think that is a continuous process. But what happens, according to Armstrong and other historians, is that two and a half thousand years ago, in the axial period, they call it, the notions of justice and compassion, freedom, and also universality, that this respect for the other, the other who is different from you, not just your concern with your own tribal survival, but really caring for humanity, all made, uh, theists would say, in the image of God. I think all of that is now part of religion and a way of judging religion. And I think this is quite a difficult area, but I'm aware that religion can be quite toxic at times and damaging to both the one who believes and to others who have, you know, forbid and non-believers in that particular view. But I think mature religion is somehow crossing those boundaries and caring for the other, even though they don't believe the same way you do. I'm very hesitant and wary of saying that religion used to be primitive and now it's not. Yes. My own personal opinion, as society scaled up, particularly as Danny said, in the axial age, the type of gods that were needed to secure and to make the group cohesive changed in their model. So this is where a big god, a god who couldn't oversee, who's omniscient, who's omnipresent, he becomes very useful in binding the group together. So, for example, it reduces heavily the cost of punishment. Um, In the Christian tradition, if you have a very sort of morally aware god who is deeply concerned with how people behave morally, He is also a source of punishment, so it reduces the cost of societal punishment, but it also makes people aware that there's this eye in the sky watching them, which sort of, so the theorising goes, curtails sort of immoral behaviour. So they become useful because society has changed and the gods that we need therefore adapt as well. Was this what Dostoevsky had in mind when he said, without God, all things are permitted? Whether Dostoevsky actually thought that, I don't know. That's an interesting question, whether he actually um, believed it. I doubt it. He seems pretty um, gloomy in his outlook, so I'm imagining that he was probably a nihilist. But of course, people have used that quote repeatedly in the public discourse to suggest that you can't have one without the other, that religion, um, or morality in particular, requires religion and belief in God. It was in the Brothers Karamazov that that phrase is put, I think, in the mouth of the brother who is a nihilist, or at least uh, is not very moral, whereas the hero of the story is religious and moral. So it's a point of view that Dostoevsky puts in the book, but I think it's not one that he himself would have gone with. 
both of you touched on the question of morality, and I, I do need to ask whether we can have an effective moral code to live by without religion. I'm hoping you're going to disagree on this, but Kitty, you kick us off. All right. Okay. Well, my answer is uh, yes, in a, in a nutshell. Yes, you can be moral without a belief in God. I mean, I would say that I'm an atheist and consider myself to be a generally good person. But it's very interesting, this intricate association between religion and morality. And it's been something that people have talked about for thousands of years. Um, I mean, Socrates touched on it at one point. And what we find, actually, is a lot of bias against atheists comes from deeply rooted intuitions about the putatively necessary role of religion in morality. So it is this idea that, well, how could you possibly be moral if you don't have a belief in God? I would argue that you can, and that the relationship between religion and morality, I mean, good luck to the person that tries to sort of unweave that, I would say, but I don't think the two are the same. I would go with that and say that you can be very moral and not be religious but I don't think you can be religious without being moral. So for me, if you like, morality is necessary for religion. It's that way around. And if you're not being moral, then it's no point pretending religious. You're just playing magic or whatever basic you know, games it is. But you're not truly being religious in that mature sense. But Danny, there are plenty of religious people who are immoral. I think all of us fail from time to time. That's part of, of a human condition. But to make it systematic, to justify your cruelty against others and the horrible things that people do in the name of religion, that's why I think value judgments can come in, just like we can say there's good art and bad art of good music and bad music, that there are ways of saying this is better than that. So religion, when it causes you to act cruelly to non-believers, I think is coming from that primitive part of ourselves. And I think when religion helps you transcend your selfishness, that's, I think, when religion is acting well. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Kitty Alone and Rabbi Danny Smith. Where do religious beliefs come from is the question we're asking. A surprising number of scientists have come out as believers in one form or another. Here's Richard Staley talking about Albert Einstein in the Naked Reflections show, Einstein archetypal genius? Well, he's certainly not an atheist. In fact, he said, I'm not an atheist. And you can see that with that tendency to go towards God and to speak about God when he's thinking about questions about determinism. Einstein's deism seems to have been rooted in a desire for a coherent picture of reality. Is this a valid way of thinking about God? I think it's one way of thinking about God, and it's certainly valid. If I could say a modern parable which may or may not be helpful um there's a story about king solomon who liked to go incognito in jerusalem to hear what people were saying and he goes to a to the mountain and he sees three workers pushing stones from one end of the field to the other end of the field and he asks the first one what are you doing and he says isn't it obvious i'm just pushing these stones all day long from one end to the other end of the field and he asks the second worker who says I'm earning a living to support you know, my family. And he asks the third worker, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a temple for the Lord. Now, they're all doing the same action, but they have very different meanings attached to them. And for the one who's building a temple, the very act is, is a holy and sacred act and very powerful. 
And it's not to deny that the truth of the other's experiences, they all have their own experiences. But I do think that religion is about finding or discovering meaning, which goes beyond the individual self, which ties you to a bigger story, to the universe, to a sense of connection, oneness with a bigger universe. So I'm not sure how much Einstein was a deist, but he did like to see pattern and meaning and a sense of, you know, of the beauty and awe. All of that, maybe the scientist and the religious person have a, a similar base for, for where they go to. Kitty, I wonder whether this question of meaning can be linked back to the hyperactive agency detection device. In other words, that we're not simply on the lookout for the threat that's around the corner, but we're actually on the lookout for some kind of, uh, yeah, meaning uh, to our existence. The argument goes that this sort of hyperactivity interacts with our mentalizing capacities. So we, we infer them to have intentional states. They are sort of agents that have desires, beliefs, causes. Um, so it's this interaction between various cognitive biases, cognitive abilities that lead to this belief in a supernatural agent who is not only present, but also intentional and also provides a convenient or plausible explanation for the patterns that human beings intuitively see. It's a very sort of theoretically attractive package. Danny, you were nodding away there. I think that there is a wish to find meaning. And I think there's also a wish to find connection, you know, to feel part of something rather than alienated. The universe can seem so impersonal and harsh at times. So it may well be that we ascribe character and feeling. But I think that doesn't mean it's not a real experience, you know, this connection. I think religion is that attempt to make a deep connection on the deepest way between my most real self and the best idea of, of what is ultimately important out there. I wonder whether from a, a social science perspective, Kitty, Spinoza's concept of a God who controls the universe, but does not, unlike what Dan has just said, does not reach into our lives, is something that can appeal more easily to scientists, whether they're um, social or otherwise? I'm not entirely sure about that, to be perfectly honest. The sort of the assumption is that for scientists, anything out of the realm of the physical world is a no-go. So whether God intervenes in our moral lives or whether he doesn't is besides the point. It's, does he even exist at all? How could he possibly? In your work as a minister of religion, as a rabbi, but also as a therapist, is there a certain personality type that inclines more towards religious belief? I don't know the answer to that, although I can see some people do have perhaps a, a talent for it or it's in their nature. I think it'd be a bit like a musician saying everybody can learn to play a musical instrument if they work hard, if they're disciplined. But there are some people who will do it brilliantly and have a, you know, can learn from a very young age and that others will have to work awfully hard to get anywhere. So I think with the religion too, discipline and persistence probably brings results where and to sit back and wait for the grace of God to do it all is I think not a mature way of dealing with things and just thinking about you know how you approach a, an academic exam if you spend your time praying for God to give you a pass you may not go very far but if you do some study <laughs> then then it might help better but it doesn't mean that prayer is without its value. It's just not a substitute for hard work. Yes, 
I was going to, I was always a bit hesitant about going here because it's quite a contested area of research, but there does tend to be, well, there is at least evidence to suggest that there are thinking styles or personality types that make you more inclined to non-belief. So here there is a body of research to suggest that people on the autistic spectrum with much more systematized ways of thinking show much higher levels of atheism. Or if they are religious, they like to construe their own religious belief. They like to have their own set of way of doing things. And this is very interesting because, of course, there are I'm sure lots of people who are on the autistic spectrum who class themselves as very religious. So that's not to deny their experience or their belief. But there is a body of scientific evidence that suggests that people who are, have deficits on mentalizing abilities, such as those seen in on the autistic spectrum, are much more prone to disbelieve in God. And it's this systematizing, people have argued, that's also seen in scientists, which might sort of explain this correlation that we sometimes see between people who are scientists and disbelief. So that's not to suggest that it's completely correct. It's been very contested, but it certainly is something worth thinking about. And it's interesting, this idea that different thinking styles um, might influence the way that we perceive the structure of the universe, for example. Is there an aspect where the fervour of that belief closes one's mind off to other alternatives that you hang on to certain principles the boundaries are fixed the walls are built and that prevents you from taking seriously and really listening to other forms of belief oh yes absolutely i mean the thing that jumps to my mind is the confirmation bias which um, we're all guilty of and particularly if you hold something to be true but also have this huge emotional attachment to it i mean Religious belief involves enormous amounts of sort of emotion, feeling, and often we sort of override logic and reason in the face of extreme emotion. We feel it to be true. Therefore, we shut off our sort of reasoning abilities to logic and to reason. At least that's the argumentation. Yes, I think that is something I've seen, not just in religion, but there was an article recently about someone who was being scammed for their money and the bank was refusing to release the money to go to the scammer. And the person who was being scammed was so irrational in their wish to get their money and give it to crooks. And it's very hard to let go of an idea. You know, once you've invested in something, the chances are you'll invest more in it rather than admit that you were an idiot. So I I think the same in religion, that sometimes fervor is um, hiding the fact you're not very secure in it and you're a bit scared of anything that might challenge it. People have argued before, of course, that, well, belief in God is an erroneous belief and this is what's happening. People are just interpreting information in light of this erroneous belief. I think that's unreasonable. But the point being is that, yes, of course, people with very strongly held beliefs are going to have a tendency to interpret incoming information in line with what they already believe. And you see this in a variety of contexts. So, People who spread misinformation online, for example, are much more likely to spread misinformation that confirms what they already believe. You know, it's very unlikely that some very fervent conservative is suddenly going to start sort of spreading left-wing liberal articles on Facebook, for example. So yes, and it provides a sense of security as well. Cognitively, it's probably that to undo a belief or to revise incoming information in light of new information is actually much more cognitively costly. So it's perhaps just the brain's way of just 
smoothing and making it less costly to process information. It's just much easier if you just process everything in line with what you already believe. A question that I haven't yet asked is why you think no society has developed or we know of that hasn't had some kind of religious foundation? What would you say as a social scientist, Kitty? Well, my feeling on the matter is that there has never been, to the best of our knowledge, a human society without belief in some kind of supernatural agent because our cognitive system is geared towards belief in supernatural agents. And when you combine that with the extraordinary sort of socially cohesive powers that religious belief has, it's the perfect recipe for human society. You know, it triggers parts of our cognitive architecture that are sort of designed to seek out meaning, to seek out agents. But also in combination with this, it provides a hugely powerful binding force that brings societies together. So arguably, humans needed it to survive. We are group animals and we have this extraordinary glue, if you like. So the combination of the interaction of sort of this, the social aspects and the cognitive aspects, I think, make religion inevitable in human society. Would you apply that in the past tense rather than the present tense, Kitty? And I'm thinking really more in the West where we have an increasing number of secular people like yourself, but not just secular, but atheists or who are the nuns not affiliated with any religion. Now, whilst that is out of kilter with much of the world, it is the reality both in the West of Europe and increasingly in North America. And I'm just wondering what implications that has when that gap, that vacuum exists in human society, if if it's for the first time, as you seem to imply. As you said, what's interesting, of course, is that atheists, sorry to generalise here, but, you know, hardcore atheists like to sort of think that religious people are mad. Um, But of course, they are massively in the minority. (laughs) It's like it's almost like the default setting for human beings is to be religious. So to not be religious is the curiosity rather than the other way around. What we're tending to see now, of course, is this shift from people who prescribe to a particular religious faith or tradition. And particularly in the West, there's this sort of category of spiritual but not religious. So what you could argue is that for these people, there isn't a decline in sort of religiosity there's a decline in sort of culturally prescribed religiosity if you like it's like these people don't suddenly have any less desire for meaning than anybody else but you're right atheists are quite interesting and just off the top of my head I'd say it probably stems from the enlightenment from sort of the prevalence of science coming into the public arena Um, but it would certainly be very interesting as a historical study to see the very early roots of atheism like where where did this come from And that actually is probably um, equally as interesting a question as where do religious beliefs come from? Where do non-religious beliefs come from? That sounds like the topic for another episode of Naked Reflections. Thanks to my guests, Kitty Alone and Rabbi Danny Smith. And thanks to you two for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? It's quite a resource now. You may also want to check out our other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with a new topic and some new guests.